If you do have your Bibles, let's, let's go to the message. Um, we'll open up to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Tracy, thank you so much for reading this passage for us today. We're at a, a really pivotal moment in the Gospel of John, and we'll kind of explain why this passage is a pivotal moment. Sometimes it can be a little difficult as you're reading through um, some of the dialogue in the Gospel of John, like Jesus can get in the weeds a little bit, and you're like, what is he talking about, and what is the significance of this particular passage? And so today what I want to do is just walk through this passage and, and note why this passage, this is a, an important turning point in the ministry of Jesus, where Jesus has been doing things kind of secretively, in secret, a little bit, not as, as, as upfront, and and even his brothers are going to call him out for it, like, why, why are you doing all these things kind of on the down low? Why don't you go and do this openly? And so this question about when is Jesus going to openly say, here I am, when is he going to do that? And what we're going to find is at the beginning of this passage, he is going to be operating in secret, but by the end, he's going to be standing in the temple screaming out, if anybody's thirsty, come to me. And this is the passage in which we see this entire book shift to where Jesus is going to stand front and center and say, come to me. That, I'm, that, that should pump us up. I'm pretty pumped about that. Can you imagine just the scene? The scene. So let's walk through this and let's figure out what exactly Jesus is doing. John chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus went in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews, the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. And it says the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacle, Tabernacles, was at hand. And so this whole passage will only make sense if we understand a little bit about this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. I'm not going to say booths, because it's hard to say. I feel like I spit every time I say the Feast of Booths. And so we're going to call it the Feast of Tabernacles. If you are Jewish, you would call it Sukkot. Sukkot. So there's a, the, 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 the mention of the feast, okay? Sometimes when we get to these little details, if you're like me, they can be like flyovers. Like, I don't understand what that means, so I'm just going to fly over it and get to something that I understand, right? You ever read your Bible that way? Like whenever you get to the names of people, you're like, and blah, 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 blah. And, blah, and I, you're like, the Feast of Tabernacles, what does that mean? Okay, well, there's two reasons why John mentions the Feast of Tabernacles. The first reason is this, is to note the amount of time that has passed from the last major episode in the story which if you've been following along, the last major episode in the story was Jesus going up on the hillside and miraculously out of this little kid's lunch, breaking bread and feeding 5,000 military-aged males and their families. The feeding of the 5,000, that was the last major event. And he does that at Passover. And it's so interesting because at Passover was the time where the, the people, the Israelites, the, the Jews, would be celebrating this idea of the exodus and how God had provided for them out of the Exodus, and particularly miraculous bread. And so Jesus is like, it's Passover, it's time for miraculous bread. And so he starts to do that. Now, by mentioning the Feast of Tabernacles, what he has noted is, okay, first of all, there are three major feasts in which Jewish men would go up to Jerusalem every year. The earliest one was in the springtime, and that was Passover. 
Okay? And usually that would mark the beginning of the harvest of grain. So wheat and grain harvest would begin in the spring, and that would begin at Passover. Then you would have 50 days later the Feast of Pentecost. Okay? 40, uh, you'd, have, you'd have essentially seven weeks later the end of the grain harvest, and that would be sometime in June. So usually Passover would be sometime in March or April, like Easter, the Easter season is Passover season. You'd have that in March or April, and then you'd have Pentecost, which would usually happen in June, and then you'd have the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrated the, the, the harvesting of grape and olives, grapes and olives. So wine, olive oil, that would all happen at this time. But that, har- that, that harvest and that feast happens in the fall, in September and October. So for John, when he says, hey, remember the last thing that happened was at Passover, that was six months ago. Six months ago. And if you remember this, it was this, this, this event was like shrouded a little bit, like he does it, he, he feeds all these people, and then they want to make him king, so he like takes off and bails and hides from them, and then he like walks on water, and they don't know where he went and all this stuff, and then he starts teaching about, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and everybody's like, well, Jesus, this is kind of offensive. I'm out of here. Like, that's that six-month period. And you've got to imagine this is, not, this is not the high point of Jesus' ministry. This is a point where he's in a rural area. There's not a lot of people around. His disciples have been dwindling because his teaching has been hard. But this is six months later. And the mention of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles likely provides the context for the impatience that we hear from his brothers. His brothers are going to be impatient. They're like, when are you going to like take on the big stage, big guy? Like, we're, all we hear is talk. Like, you're making bread and talking a big game. But when are you going to actually go to the big stage, the big city? When are you going to do that? The other thing that the mention of the Feast of Tabernacles does is the Feast of Tabernacles provides also the context for really two of the most important statements of Jesus, and that is when Jesus says, is anyone thirsty, let him come and drink, and I am the light of the world. The Feast of Tabernacles had different rites and rituals that involved water as well as lights. And so the next two big statements of Jesus happen around the time of Tabernacles. So Tabernacles was a seven-day festival. Um, they would make tent structures. And uh, you anyway, you, you, if you go today, um, like, Israel, uh, Israelis will make like tents in their living room and like live in them for seven days because it's a feast of, of these tabernacles. And also when, when you would harvest, you would have to go out into the, uh, you'd have to protect all the grapes. And so you would make these little booths out in the field and then you would, you would protect all of your crops. Okay, no extra charge for that little bit of information. Okay, so all that to say, the first thing we want to do, if, if the Feast of Tabernacles provides some background to the impatience of his brothers, it's been a six-month period, let's look at what they say. Look at 7.3. His brothers say to him, it's feast time, Jesus. All the good Jews are going up to Jerusalem. Actually, what they say is, his brothers say, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. And then they say in 7.4, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you're doing all these things, 
Show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And here's the thing. His brothers note, look, Jesus, you are impressive. There is no doubt. You are a super impressive dude. But here's the deal. You're being super impressive, like up here in the sticks, in the farmland. It would be, it would be kind of like the idea that, um, like if someone, for us, we, we know people who live like in the Central Valley. Anybody know anybody in the Central Valley? Any Bakersfield fans out there? Any Fresno fans out there? Anybody, Modesto, you know, like Dinuba, you know, like it would be like somebody in like Dinuba, you're like, where's Dinuba? Exactly, okay? It would be like somebody, some of you are like, sorry out there if you're from Dinuba, if you're from Kingsburg or something, some weird town like that, okay. But if it was somebody there, like in Bakersfield, and they were like, I'm going to turn the entertainment industry upside down. I am the next, I'm going to turn, it's all entertainment is going to flow through me. And they lived in Bakersfield, you'd be like, look, why don't you just go over the grapevine and go to Hollywood, big guy? Like, talk is cheap. Like, why don't you go to where it's actually happening? And that's kind of like what his brothers are saying to him now. Like, Jesus, you've done all these things up here, and you've kind of gathered as many followers as you could. It'd be like somebody, like somebody in Fresno saying, I'm the next big tech giant. And people would probably say, well, why don't you go to like Cupertino, dude? Like, why don't you go to the Silicon Valley? Why don't you go to San Jose? Why, like, if you're going to be the next big thing, you need to go to where, that is, where you're able to do that. You need to step onto the big stage. And that's exactly what they're saying to him. So Jesus' brothers, have, have, they would acknowledge, look, you're doing amazing things. But they've grown weary, essentially, of the talk. They note his works, but they also note that he has not entirely embraced the big stage. And if you're reading the Gospel of John, you recognize this as well. That Jesus has not entirely stepped onto that big stage. They say in 7.4, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Not just to Galilee or to Capernaum or Bethsaida, like whatever. Tiberius, go to Jerusalem. Step on the big stage. They were skeptics. Not even his brothers believed in him. So they're not like, they're not doing this because they're, they love Jesus. They're doing it because they've grown a little weary of Jesus. Has anybody ever grown weary of your brother? Okay. You, then you know what they're talking like. You're like, you're awesome and everything, but I'm a little tired of you. Okay. So they, they haven't entirely gotten on board with who Jesus is. And I think, look, if, if my brother was like, hey, you know, look, I'm the next big thing. If you, want to, if you want to go to the Father, you've got to come through me. I'd be like, hey, dude, I know who you are, right? And they're going to say that, like, we know who you are, right? But at this point, they've grown a little bit weary of that. And so we have the Feast of Tabernacles and the criticism of Jesus' brothers, and Jesus' response is, it's not time. It's not time. And this might be one of the things that they're, they're kind of like, when is the right time? Look at 7-6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What he's saying is, my time has not yet come, but any time is a good time for you guys. And the reason why any time is a good time for you guys is because you're friends with the world. 
The world doesn't have anything against you, but the world has something against me. I've come, and I'm going to call it out. And when I call it out, all of hell is going to come down. And once I do call this out, then it, the, the time is, it's going to set wheels in motion. And what he's saying is like, my time, it's not time for that yet. The world cannot hate you, because, but it hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil, 7, 8. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying that, they take off and he stays in Galilee. Any time's a good time for you guys. If you're friends of the world, then your time frame is like, I want to push this time frame up. I want to get this done. I'm impatient. Jesus, let's get this moving. But when I call it out for what it's doing, Jesus is going to say, it's going to hate me. And it's going to want to destroy me. And so, essentially, what Jesus is saying is, I'm, he's saying, um, one of my favorite Saturday Night Live skits is the um, debate between Al Gore and George Bush. You ever remember this one? I don't know if you guys remember this, the, the debate, because Al Gore said the word lockbox a hundred times in that debate. And then they were like, they asked the question, um, what, how, would you, how would you describe, how would you sum up your position on the debate? And Al Gore character says, lockbox. And then they asked the George Bush character, and, and it's Will Ferrell, and he's playing George Bush, and he says, how would, you, how would you sum up the debate? And he says, strategery. <laughs> All right, anyway, okay, that, sorry, a little bit. But essentially, Jesus is saying, look, this is a strategic, strategery, everybody, this is a strategic, sorry, I don't know why that came to mind, but that's essentially, you get a little insight into how my brain works here. Okay, so strategic, that's, that's the idea. And the point, I think the point about this is that my time has not yet come. Um, Jesus will talk about in the whole book this idea that my hour, like when, when Mary's like, hey, Jesus, they ran out of wine, and he's like, hey, my hour has not yet come. And every time in the book that people are going to ask Jesus to do something, he's going to say, hey, look, it's not my time. It's the hour has not yet come until the hour comes. And in chapter 12 is going to be officially when he says, my hour has come. And we're going to look at that in a couple weeks. But essentially right, what he's saying is that my time has not yet come. And when he talks about my hour or my time, he's talking about his arrest his crucifixion, his death for John, that's the moment of his glorification. And so he's saying, look, we, we have to be, I have to be strategic about this because once these wheels get in motion, they're going to move quickly and they're going to move violently and they're going to move me towards the cross. And I want everybody, I want this to be ready. And God, the Father, it's his timetable that we are on. He is sovereign. So my time has not yet come. And what we're going to see in this passage is at the beginning of this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, his time had not yet come. It's not time. But by the end of the feast, oh, it's time. By the end of the feast, Jesus is going to go up to the feast and embrace this idea of showing himself. What happen is this fall... This fall, he's going to show himself in the temple, but by spring, he's going to be dead on a Roman cross. And so true, true to his predictions, this is going to go quickly once he does this. 
It's also kind of a, a melancholy time. We could imagine that this in the, in the gospel, this is the last time Jesus will be in his hometown in Galilee. This is the last time. After he leaves, after chapter 7, he leaves to go to Jerusalem. He will never again return to these towns that he knows like Nazareth and Cana and Capernaum. He's never again going to see the Sea of Galilee. So there is a little bit of melancholy here that this is going to begin the last six months essentially of his ministry and of his life here on earth. And so what's going to happen is that um, the gears of opposition and redemption are going to begin to turn with much more clarity after this moment in the gospel. All right, so that, that's a little bit of the background as we get into this particular passage. So these two themes are pivotal in the passage in the Gospel of John. They're built on the criticism. And with this, the, the criticism of his brothers bring out two things. Look at 7.4, and I want to point out two things that show up again and again in the, in the passage. 7.4, this is their criticism. No one works in secret. If you're a person who marks your Bible, you can underline in secret, Okay. If he seeks to be known openly, and you could underline openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. You could underline show. Because all of those three terms are going to show up again later in the passage. Okay? So these two themes, in secret and openly, let's just start, start with those. It says, no one works in secret. And that word in Greek, it's this, it's this phrase, encrypto. It means in in, in, uh, in secret, in hiding. No one works in hiding or in secret if they wish to be known en parousia. So you've got en crypto, which is in secret, and then en parousia means openly. If you have the NIV, it probably says publicly. Or it's this idea of like you have on the one hand, you have in secret, and you have in the open. In the open can also be translated in boldness. Like you don't do something secretly if you want to do it boldly. And so what they're saying in that, you've got these two ideas about doing things in secret and doing things in the open. And these two themes are really going to punctuate the rest of this passage and kind of show that we're going to have this, we're going to have this sense that Jesus is going to operate in secret while his detractors are going to be very open and public about it. But by the end, Jesus is going to be operating in the open and his detractors are now going to secretly start to uh, work against him. So we're going to have this in open, in secret sort of a thing going back and forth. Does this, I, I feel like that we could, anyway, it's like, a, like an exercise video. Anyway, all right, all right. Just join in on the, on the craziness, everybody. All right, so let's talk about this idea about in, in secret, first of all. So um, how do we see this idea about Jesus being in secret? We've already introduced this idea of being in secret in the Gospel of John already. If you've been reading along, when Jesus turned water into wine in chapter 2, no one knew that he did it, except for the servants. Only the servants knew. It was in secret. When he met with Nicodemus in chapter 3, when does he meet with him? At night, when no one else is around. He meets with him in secret. When he meets the woman at the well, when does he meet with her? It's noontime, but that, is, that means that nobody else is around at the well. 
And it's Samaritan, so there's no Jewish leadership there. He does it in secret. When he heals the official's son in chapter 4, how does he do it? He's in Cana, the official son is in Capernaum, and he does it from a distance. And then the servants and the guy, they don't meet in, in Capernaum, they're coming, they meet each other on the road. So nobody really knows, he can't really build this kind of groundswell around it. He does it in secret. When he heals the man in chapter 5 at the pool of Beth- Bethesda, he heals this guy, and then what does Jesus do? While the guy's standing up and picking up his mat, Jesus is like, I'm out of here, right? He goes away. When, the guy, when they ask him, hey, who healed you? He's like, I don't know. I wasn't paying that close attention. Jesus does it in secret. And then we just read in chapter 6 when he feeds the large crowd, and then they want to make him king. What does he do? He gets out of there. He somehow stays off the radar in secret. And even in our passage, John's going to say Jesus continues to operate in secret. Look at 7.4. What what his brothers say about them, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, open yourselves to the world. In 7.8, here's what happens. So they go up to the feast, and Jesus is like, I'm not going up to this feast. And I I don't know exactly what to do with this because... um, it says in 7, 8, um, he goes, you go up to the feast, I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet come. But for some reason, Jesus changes his mind in verse 10. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in secret. Now, aside, did Jesus just lie? Look, I'm just saying, I don't know. I'm going to give Jesus a break on this one. Okay, but I'm just, I, I am like, like, that might be a real response you might have is like, well, just, did Jesus deceive them? Like, what's going on? I think ultimately what's happening is Jesus can say, I'm not going up with you guys. Maybe I'll come up later. Um, so essentially what he says, what he does is he doesn't go up publicly with them, but he goes up kind of incognito, probably because what we find is that the next time Jesus will come in publicly to the city of Jerusalem, it's going, to be, uh, it's going to be Palm Sunday. And he doesn't want to have a premature Palm Sunday. Like he doesn't want to come in and cause a big, a big ruckus on this occasion. That's going to come later. So after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And when it says not publicly in your Bible, you can underline that, if you want to like underline that and draw a line back up to show yourself, it's the same word. So he goes, so Jesus is going to go up to them. He's going to go up in secret, but he's going to go up and he's not going to show himself. They say, show yourself to the world. I'm going to go up privately. I'm not going to show myself to anybody. So he still is operating in secret in the early part of this passage. Look at the opposition to Jesus in verse 11. The Jews are expecting him to come publicly. They're looking for him at the feast saying, where'd this guy go? Where is he? Where is that guy? We're expecting him. And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some say he's a good man, while others are saying he's a deceiver. He's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly. No one spoke 
in public. No one spoke in the open about him. So we still have this idea, Jesus is secret. His followers are still secret about him. Although his opposition is very much known that people are out to get Jesus. And by the end of this passage, all of this is going to flip. Jesus will be out in the open, and the opponents will retreat to secret planning. Okay? Now, how do we see Jesus come out into the open? Okay, look at 714. How do we see Jesus come out in boldness? Okay, 714. So Jesus secretly makes his way into the, into the city. I always wonder how he would do this, is like put the hood up, you know, and just kind of make your way in with some pilgrims who don't know who you are. Because this is a time when a bunch of people are coming up. So you got all these pilgrims coming into the city. Jesus kind of gets into the crowd. He doesn't, you know, it's, it, I think we oftentimes think when Jesus walks around, he's got everybody's robe is like dirty, but Jesus has this clean white robe on. And there's a, you know, a, a, a beam of light from heaven wherever he goes. Wouldn't that be, he's like, hey, turn the light off, right? I, I need to go in secretly. But Jesus is just a guy. He's a man. And so he puts the hood on, and he goes in, and then in 714, look at 714, about the middle of the feast, it's a seven-day feast, it's a seven-day feast, so probably about day three or day four, Jesus went up, not just into Jerusalem, but into the temple, the heart of Jerusalem, and in the temple, he begins to teach. So Jesus sneaks into the city under the radar, and then he shows up in the temple, and he starts teaching, and in verse 15, it says, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And probably what they're saying is that in rabbinical schools, if you're talking about Torah, what you would say is, you would say, well, Rabbi Ben Eleazar says this, and Rabbi Shammai says this, and Rabbi Hillel says this, but Jesus just says, truly, truly, I say to you, he doesn't have to name any other rabbis, and they're like, what school did this dude go to? And the ironic answer to that question is, like, where did he learn all these things? And the answer is, heaven. <laughs> like, he learned from his father in heaven. He didn't have to go to school. How is this man has such learning when he has never studied? And so Jesus, he, he avoids this premature triumphal entry, shows up in the heart of Jerusalem in the temple teaching. And the crowds are baffled. They're amazed that he has no formal training. He doesn't teach like the typical rabbi, citing other rabbis. He says, my teaching is not mine. I didn't learn it from a rabbi. I learned it from the Father. He who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority, he seeks his own glory. And this is probably the reason why Jesus is saying, I've done all these things in private. And that is this, I am not seeking my own fame. I am not seeking my own glory. I am not seeking my own reputation. I am not seeking my own glory. What I'm seeking is the glory of the Father. I'm seeking the glory of the Father. And this is probably the, 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 the apologetic for why Jesus has been doing so many things in secret. It's not to make a name for himself. It's to glorify the Father. The one who speaks on his own authority, verse 18, seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, 
and there is no falsehood. He's not trying to increase his own popularity or his own glory, but the glory of the Father. And now it's clear that he is not in it for himself. I suppose this is just, let's back off the text for a second, and I think, I think this is a good test to put in front of any person who, who rises to a level of popularity or influencers on social media or in media. Like, if, when people are in it for themselves, there's a sense in which you can, you can catch that, right? And I think there is something in that that we, you kind of can see beyond and behind people. And sometimes, even in ministry, even in Christian ministry, you see people that get a large stage and they kind of, they leverage it for themselves. And this is something Jesus is saying, look, Jesus is saying, I'm not even trying to do that. If I could go on doing these things in secret and bring glory to the Father, then I would do that. But here's the, here's the thing. What I'm going to do, what God's will is, is that I am going to present myself to the world. But I'm doing it so that the Father will be glorified, not for my own reasons. And as he talks to them, he's going to call out two things. He says, I made a man whole on the Sabbath, and you're trying to kill me. And, uh, and we, we, we're not going to get into all of that, but he's, he's hearkening back to when he heals the guy at the pool of Bethesda, tells the guy to pick up his mat and walk. The problem is it's a Sabbath, and so the guy's carrying his mat, happy because he couldn't carry it for 38 years, and they're like, what are you doing carrying your mat? They miss the miracle, and they just they, the loophole is like, hey, you're not supposed to carry your mat on the Sabbath. He's like, I'm celebrating today. I can carry my mat for the first time in 38 years. So Jesus... Jesus says, look, are you angry at me because I made a man whole on the Sabbath? Why are you trying to kill me? Look at 725. After he goes through this whole thing, the people say this super ironic thing. Some of the people in Jerusalem, therefore, say, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is in the open. Same phrase that we saw his brother say, why don't you do things in the open? Now we have this Jerusalem crowd saying, here he is in the open, and the leaders aren't saying anything to them. They've gone dark. And then they say this, this kind of like ironic thing. Can it be that the authorities really know that he's the Messiah? So the fact that he comes out in the open, and they stop their open criticism of him, they, that... Are, do, do these people think that he's the Messiah too? It's like the man who's born blind later on, he's going to say, uh, they're going to say, show us who he is. And he's like, do you want to be his disciple too? They're like, no, we want to kill him. Uh, but this idea like, no, do, maybe they think, maybe they really know that he is the Messiah. And then here's where in our passage, I think where we begin to, we see this. And I think in, in the ESV, it doesn't come out as, as strongly, but look at 728. In 728. It says, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. And here's, here's why I don't like the, the translation of the word proclaim there. The word there in Greek is the verb krodzo. It means to cry out or to yell out. And what it's saying is this, that Jesus sneaks into the city, and then he sits down in the temple courts and he starts teaching, but eventually he gets up in the temple courtyards and starts yelling 
And this is, his brothers are like, why don't you do things in the open? Why are you doing things in secret? And here, by the end of this passage, Jesus is standing in the middle of the temple saying, and he's yelling out, he's yelling out, you know me. You know where I come from. I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him. He sent me. He's yelling this out. Proclaimed is probably too tame of a translation. He is standing there, and he's yelling this out. And then probably the climax of this passage, this whole thing, why are you doing these things in secret? You should do them in public. Show yourself to the world. And Jesus comes up in secret, and he sneaks his way in, and he's done all these secretive things, but he starts teaching. Then he stands up and he starts yelling. And then in verse 20, in verse 37, he says this, on the last day of the feats, the great day, Jesus stood up and yelled out again, same verb, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And here's why this is important. At the Feast of Tabernacles, it's a fall feast, okay? And if you've been to Israel, you know that um, there's a lot of desert in Israel. And there's not a lot of water, okay? So in the springtime, there's a lot of water. And when, water, when it rains, they collect all this water. They're really good about collecting water into cisterns. Runoff water goes into cisterns. And it holds them out through the summer and into the fall before rains start to come in the next rainy season. And this is a fall feast where they've gone through a whole summer of drought. And if you, you look around right now, like if anybody's done any like walking or hiking in the hills around here, it's awesome right now because it's all, it's all green, right? Because it, it's, it's, we're in February and it's green. What's going to happen in like April, May, June? It's all going to be brown. And it's, we're going to start talking about drought again, Right? And we're going to wonder, why aren't we saving any of this water that's running off? Like, we're always like, we need rain. And then it rains. We're like, it's raining. I can't believe it. Like, can't we get our act together, everybody? No offense. Okay. Another side. But like, can't we figure out it's going to rain? We should capture some of this stuff? Okay. All right. But at this feast, the fall feast, it's a fall feast. It's the end of the harvest. We've just harvested all this stuff. And, it, and the, the streams have started to dwindle. The springs have started to dwindle. And one of the things that happens during this feast, at the Feast of Tabernacles, is the priests go down from Jerusalem. They go down about a quarter mile to the spring that, that, uh, that services the city of Jerusalem. It's about, about a thousand feet down. It's the spring of Gehon. It's, uh, it's where the pool of Siloam is. And they take pitchers. And they fill up these pitchers with the spring water. And then the, the priests carry them back up the hill to the top of the temple. And around them are all these people, and they're all singing songs of ascent. And they're singing thong, songs of thanksgiving. And they take these pictures, and they go to the top of the temple. And on the steps of the temple, the steps of the altar, the priest takes a, a, a pitcher of wine and a pitcher of water, and they pour them out on the steps of the temple. That's a good question, Why? There's three reasons why. One, it's an act of prayer asking God that he would be gracious to provide rain. The second reason is because it's a remembrance at this time. The booths that people put together are to remind them of the tents that they were in 
as they were in the wilderness. And what happened in the wilderness when they were thirsty? God provided miraculous water out of the rock. When Moses hits the rock or he speaks to the rock, water comes out. It's miraculous. But also, remember our Ezekiel, our Ezekiel uh, series, one of the things that's going to happen in the last days is that out of Jerusalem is going to spring up a well, and that water's going to run out to the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, and this water's going to rejuvenate the land. And the single act is this act of remembering all these three things. His brothers are saying, why don't you do these things in public? So this is what Jesus does. On the last day, as these priests are coming with these pitchers full of water and they're pouring them out on the steps, Jesus stands up in the middle of the temple and says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. You'll never thirst again. Come to me. Is there anything more public? This is one of the biggest feasts of the year, and Jesus is interrupting it by saying, Come to me, all who are thirsty. Drink. I will provide the miraculous water. I will refresh the land. I am, like, even when, back, when Moses, like, the reason, because Jesus is the rock that the water comes from. Come, if anyone is thirsty. His brothers aren't saying, hey, I wish you would be more public now. They're probably like, okay, we get it, Jesus. Like, we get it. And this is going to put into motion the wheels of opposition, but it will also put in motion the wheels of redemption. Jesus has shown up in boldness publicly and he has raised his arms at a most at a pivotal time in the year of israel and he said look you're praying to my father for water but if you are thirsty come to me come to me and this is going to begin the ambivalence that's going to characterize the rest of the gospel the growing opposition but also the growing faith and also this idea of God's sovereignty. When will Jesus' hour come? Look at 7.30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, when the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I think this idea of Jesus doing things secretly and in the open, I have, a, I have a hunch that we've all experienced this tension because you might even be in a season like this right now in your life where you're praying and asking God to do something like, God, would you show yourself faithful? Would you show yourself faithful? But God, for some reason, has chosen to act in secret, that he's not showing himself. That you're like, it's time to work, God, and, you're, and he's like, not yet. If you've been told to wait, sometimes God, sometimes God will answer a prayer yes, sometimes God will answer a prayer no, and sometimes God will say wait. And if God has said wait, this is an example of God working in secret. That God is still doing things. 
I think for me, one of the, um, one of the metaphors, and I've, t- I've shared this with you guys before, but one of the metaphors as I think about my life of faith is this metaphor of whale watching, right? You go out on the ship, and you're looking for whales, and it's this big glassy sea, if you're lucky, or else you're like this, and then people are, anyway. Um, okay, thank you very much. But you're out there, and you're like, and all of a sudden, here comes this whale, right? And you're like, oh, everybody's like, oh, there he is, there it is, there it is. And if you're in a pod, it's like coming up all over, and you're like, oh, this was awesome because there were all these whales and stuff. But sometimes you're out there, and you're like, you see this, and then the whale goes down, and you're like, where'd he go? They're like, down, 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 and then all of the, again. I think sometimes that's the way it is with God in our lives. That God will show himself, but then God will go down. Jesus will go down. We'll be praying and God will not be answering our prayers with a yes. He'll be answering our prayers with a wait. And we're like, where'd he go? If whale watching doesn't work for you, just think about, think about hydrangeas. I love hydrangeas. They're great flowers. But in the wintertime, there's no leaves and there's no flowers. They just look like sticks coming out of the ground. Does anybody have a hydrangea plant at your house? Right now it looks horrible. But in the springtime, because what? Because all of the work is happening in the roots. It's not like the plant is not growing. But it's working in secret. And I think this is important for us to understand that God has this pattern. Jesus has this pattern of working in secret and working publicly. And sometimes he says, it's not time. And we're like, hey, Jesus, it's time. He's like, any time's good for you. I get it. I get it. I'm going to work on my own time because I love you and I want the best for you. And there's a little strategery going on right now. Why don't we pray? Why don't we pray? Because I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Um, but if you are in a season where you're like, God, where did you go? That can, that can be a very disorienting time. And you need support, you need prayer, you need people to say, I know God is at work, I know God, I don't know how he's at work, but I know he is. So let's pray, let's pray. Father, we are, we come to you, and, and we do want to give thanks where we have seen you work in our community, in our church, in our lives. We give thanks for the fruit, and we love the fruit and the leaves. We recognize there's growth, that you have brought us to places, and you've grown us as people. But Father, particularly in a winter season, we're asking you that you would give us a glimpse into the secret work you're doing in our roots. And maybe, Father, you are moving us to invest some time in the secret things, the secret things like prayer, fasting, giving. You say elsewhere in Matthew, Like, those are the things to be done in secret. And if that's the case, Father, then then point us in those directions. Help our roots to grow deep so that we know how to access the nourishment that you provide. And would you encourage us while we can't see what you're doing? So that one day when when the blossoms come, and the fruit grows, 
we would be able to recognize that you have been at work all along. You've been with us all along. You've loved us deeply. Even if it has been in secret. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Oh, we want to know him more. We pray you would help us to do that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.